It's time again to bring our blessing, to bring a blessing to our God. What mercy He has shown, causing us to be born again. Born into a living hope, because our Christ is raised. Born into a family. Born into a future. Treasure endless and unfading, held in heaven's hands. Hands that guard our hearts. Hearts that trust in God. Convinced that He will save us. Confident He will show Himself. We stand now rejoicing. Even in the trial. Our fire-tested faith grows hot. Bringing glory to our God. We have never seen Him, and still we love Him. We don't see Him now, and still we rejoice. Joy without words, joy full of glory. We are being saved, have been saved will be saved. We bring a blessing now to the Father of our Savior, our one and living hope. Good morning, everyone. As you can see, I am not Pastor Allen. Pastor Allen had some delays in his trip uh, coming back from Europe. But I am Pastor Joel, I am the children's ministry pastor here at Cross Church, and I am super excited to share with you guys a sermon on 1 Peter chapter 1. So 1 Peter, in general as a whole, is talking largely about joy in the midst of suffering and trials. And this is very true in our lives. Suffering is in almost every day of our lives. We go through many different trials. And the truth is, is that people turn to different things in trials for joy and satisfaction. Maybe you're like me, and after a long day of work or something that's difficult, you just love a good ice cream cone. Maybe you have a different happy place. Maybe it's spending time with your grandkids. Maybe it's going to your favorite park. Maybe it's spending time with friends and family. Or maybe it's your favorite reading chair. Mine, when I was in high school, was going to the golf course. I loved going to the golf course and would go multiple days a week. And it was my time to reflect, pray, reflect on my week, take time away from these difficulties of life, and spend time with God. We can have these happy places, and they're good things. But here Peter, in this text, is reminding us of the ultimate joy that we have in the midst of suffering. And many of you guys know, if you've ever golfed, that golfing is a test of patience and brings its own trials. And so for me, uh, God used that to work patience 
and joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hitting many trees on the golf course, but reminded me of my future glory in heaven. And that is I wanna, what I want to bring with you today, is the future glory of God. It's a co- reminder that we constantly need. And so we're going to be diving into 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, please flip there. We're going to be going through it. And before we read, we'll pray. Father, great and glorious God, we come before your throne humbly to read your word and learn from it. Lord, we pray that you would humble our hearts, bring us to our knees before you, that you would transform us into the image of your son, that you would be working in us. Lord, we thank you that you do this in our lives. And we pray that you would do this this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Peter is writing this letter, the Apostle Peter, to a group of exiles. Exiles means that they were living in a land that was not their own. So let's read these first two verses together. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So here we see that Peter first starts off by calling himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. So this gives him credibility in what he's saying. He's saying these are the words of the Lord. This is what God has given Peter to write to these people. The elect exiles. This means, the elect means that God had chosen these people. They were his people. And exiles means that they were living in a land that was not their own. So specifically here, Peter is writing to those in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So these were provinces all in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. So this was a pretty wide audience, widespread audience. But there was one thing that united them, and that was that they were under persecution. They were living in a culture that was not one of the gospel, but it was one of the world. These people were confused, they were discouraged, they were broken. And I think that describes lots of us today. We're living in a world, well, all of us today, we're living in a world that is not our own. We're living in a broken and lost world. And we go through trials and sufferings every day. And how do we have joy in that? This is what Peter talks about. So Peter actually runs through three different things in here. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So they were chosen by God's sovereign foreknowledge. This is what brings these people joy in the midst of their suffering. Second, he says that he's chosen in the sanctification of the Spirit. And that thirdly, they are chosen for obedience to Christ Jesus. So Peter's actually going to follow these themes throughout the whole book, but largely in the next uh, 10 verses, which we will talk about. So Also, in these three verses, we see the wholeness of God. If you'll notice, the first of those points is God the Father, the head of the Trinity. The second is the Holy Spirit, and the third is Jesus Christ. So we see God in his wholeness coming and working in believers, giving them assurance of salvation and comfort in the midst of trial. This is a really powerful passage that reminds us where our hope is. We can also note here at the end that it says obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. 
sprinkling with his blood brings us back to the Old Testament, specifically to Exodus, where blood was used to seal covenants or promises. That blood was a sign that that promise would be kept forever. So here, Peter is using this, reminding these people back to the Old Testament and how God keeps his promises, how God is faithful to keep his promises. And Paul, Peter uses this to bring assurance to these people. The NLT actually words this quite well, and it says, I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's dive a little bit deeper into these three points that Peter is giving these readers to bring them into grace and peace in God. So let's read verses 3 to 5 together. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So here we see that these are God's chosen people. He has caused them to be born again. The phrase born again implies that they were dead. They were dead in sin and born again into new life. They are alive in Christ. And that's true for us. Being born again is completely contradictory to their current situation. They're currently suffering. They're currently confused, discouraged. And here Peter's reminding them they have been born again. They have new life. Their death, their suffering, that's not their story. But it is life in him. And not only are they born again, they're born again into a living hope. A hope that is active. A hope that is alive. Again, this is contrary to their current situation where the immediate future is just death, dying, suffering, persecution. But Peter's pointing them past that. He's pointing them to a living hope. It's not a hope that fades with the world, but it's a hope that lasts for eternity. And this was bought with Christ's blood through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the gospel story, how Jesus was with the Father in heaven, sent to this earth to live a perfect, sinless life, dying on the cross, taking our sin on him, being dead in the grave for three days and being raised to new life, and then ascending to be with God the Father. This resurrection is what brings this out. Our Savior is not dead, but he is alive. He is living, and he is active. And that is why we have a living hope. We are born again out of our sin and death, out of the sin that our nature holds so tightly. We are born out of that into life in God. And this is what Peter is reminding these people of that are suffering. He's reminding them of this living hope that they have. And why do they have this living hope? It's according to God's great mercy. It's nothing that these people have done. 
It's not any of their works, but it's purely based on what God has done. It's not by their strength, not by their choice, but by God. We deserve death. That's the punishment that we deserve. But instead, God gives us hope, living and active hope because of his great mercy. The Bible actually separates a difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is a change of condition. It's a change of our state from being helpless to being saved. Whereas grace is a change of position. It's more of a legal view where our guilt is now lifted and our relationship can be made right with God. And it's because of God's great mercy that he expresses his grace to us in giving us this living hope. And this brings us great joy because it is by God's mercy. And that's what makes it imperishable. It will never fade. Peter goes on and talks about their inheritance. He says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. This is an inheritance, which brings us to the fact that we are children of God. We are part of God's family, and the inheritance that we have in him is greater, far, far greater than any inheritance of this earth. When we think of inheritance, we think of money, a house, maybe a nice car, and these are earthly inheritances that will one day pass away and maybe be passed on to the next generation. But this inheritance that we have in God is the hope of heaven. It is eternal. It is one that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, while our world and everything in it is perishable, defiled, and unfading. This is completely contrary to the world. And this inheritance that we have in God is completely pure. Not only is it completely pure, it's also kept in heaven for us. Heaven is a place where things will never pass away. It's where things are kept pure. Things are kept blameless, where things last forever. This is where our inheritance lies. Death cannot remove our inheritance. Laws in court cannot remove our inheritance. It is kept in heaven, the eternal place, for us. This demonstrates God's power and encourages us to live and to trust in God no matter our situation, whether we're suffering, whether we're in trials. Not only is our promise or is our inheritance kept in heaven, but God is also keeping us. Peter says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. By God's power, he is keeping us. That is a glorious truth for us as we live in a broken world, that God not only is keeping the promise that we will inherit eternal life, but he is keeping us in him. This brings us great joy when we go through trials, that God is keeping us. So this is us talking about how God has chosen us as his people by his ultimate foreknowledge, that he chose us from the beginning of time to be his own, That brings us great comfort. And God has also chosen us for his sanctification. That's what we're going to talk about now. Sanctification means that God is making us more holy. He is transforming us into the image of his son. He is setting himself apart for ourselves, apart for himself. This is what sanctification is. 
In fact, God has already set us apart. He has set us apart, and he is setting us apart. This is what sanctification is. And Peter actually goes more in-depth than this in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, which let's read together. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter here is very clear about where we were and where we are. We are God's chosen people. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God has set us out for his own possession. When Peter said this, this would have brought great encouragement to these people, remembering that they truly are God's people, even though they weren't living in their land. God had set them aside as his own, and he set them as his own so that, they, so that they would proclaim the excellencies of him who called them. That is the gospel truth. They were set aside to share the good news with others of what Christ has done in their lives. God set these people apart, and yet God is also setting us apart. Sanctification is also a process. We rejoice in this truth of sanctification, that he is making us more holy. Because even though we suffer trials, it's only for a little while. Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Did I already skip this? So, hang on, I gotta find my... Went the wrong way. Okay, so in this we rejoice that we have been transformed through these sufferings. The truth is, is that these sufferings, these trials only last a short time. But we can look forward to what is to come for all eternity until we are united with Christ in the second coming where we will be glorified in our heavenly bodies. This is what we look forward to. The world tells us that now we need to live for ourselves because life is short. But instead, because of Christ, we surrender because life is short and live for his glory because eternity is long. That's the truth of the gospel. And this is what sets our sights on heaven to bring us through these hard times now is that we have this future in heaven. It's just a short while while we suffer here on earth until we have our true joy in heaven. And it takes a lot to lay this down here on earth. We often don't like to suffer. We like to make things the best we can. We want the things of this world. But when we are truly allowing the Spirit to work in us, we no longer hunt these things down. It isn't what we desire most. What we desire most is to live in God, live for him and for his glory. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 30, 
John is sort of handing the baton off to Jesus after he prepared the way for him. And John says, he must increase and I must decrease. This is our prayer as believers, that Christ must increase and we must decrease. We must make ourselves low so that Christ would become great. And this is so contrary to what our world believes. Our world tells us that we need to find ourselves, find our better us, our better self, live our best life. But Christ tells us to lose it all. He tells us to give it all up for the sake of eternity, for the glory of God. This is what brings us joy in the midst of suffering. We rejoice in this, that the Spirit is refining us. Peter says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may result, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's what God uses. He uses these trials, these sufferings, to sanctify us. That is, making us more holy. He uses this to work in us, to rely on him, to trust in him. And Peter here actually uses an analogy. He actually talks about gold. And gold is one of the finest metals. It's the most precious. And it is, fire is used to refine gold to make it pure, to separate the unclean from the clean, the pure from the impure. It's fire that does that. Just like these trials refine us, they separate us, the pure from the impure. This is the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification in our lives. But there's one exception that Peter uses in this. The gold perishes, but our faith will never perish. Our, par- our faith is refined by fire so that it will last everlasting, so that we can endure until we see our Savior. This is the glorious truth of sanctification, that the Spirit is working in us and through us, that our faith would be proved genuine, that when trials and hard times come, our faith wouldn't fall like the things of this earth, but that our faith would be eternal, everlasting. And it's only by the Spirit working in our lives that this can be done. It's only by surrendering to God and to his work that our faith can be proved genuine. And all of this is for the praise, the glory, and the honor of God, the one who is truly pure, truly mighty, and truly sovereign. It takes a lot for us to lay down our own desires for the sake of Christ. But that is what God calls us to. He calls us to lay everything down so that his spirit works in us and through us for his glory. This is what John the Baptist exemplified, and it's also what we need to exemplify. So this is the second point, that we have been sanctified by the spirit. First, we talked about how by according to God's foreknowledge, he has chosen us. And he's chosen us for his sanctification. And thirdly, he has chosen us for obedience to Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit's work of sanctification is so that we would be proven obedient to Jesus when he comes again. Let's read verses 8 and 9 together. 
says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is what we look to. There's a very clear correlation in the Bible between faith and obedience. And the truth is is that sanctification results in obedience. That's when our hearts are set towards Christ. Suffering isn't a reason to not obey God, but it's a reason to obey God. When we're suffering, we need to turn to him in the midst of these trials because he is sovereign. We need to obey him. The book of Romans shows us how obedience is the fruit of faith. That when we truly have faith in Christ and that he is who he says he is, that is when we actually live our lives out in obedience. It's when we don't have real faith that our faith crumbles in hard times. But real faith sets our sights upon heaven when trials come. And this is what the book of Romans shows us. Even though we don't see him, we rejoice because Christ's salvation that he has given us. He has saved us from our sins. Even though we don't see him, we love him because we have faith that he is who he says he is. And because we love him, we obey him. This is what we're called to as Christians. And this is what brings comfort to the people that Peter is writing to. That God has chosen them. That God is working in them. And now that they have to be obedient to him. Because they have the joy of what is to come. Obtaining the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. Jesus is a great, great, great example of obedience. He was obedient to God. He modeled this for us, and we can actually read about this very clearly in Philippians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul writes, and writes very well about Jesus and what he did in obedience to the Father. So we'll read this together in verses, chapter 2, verses 5 to 11 where it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here Paul is articulating how Christ came to serve. He starts off by talking about how Christ took the form of a servant the ultimate servant. This is what Jesus did when he came to live on this earth. He came and lived as a humble servant. He's the ultimate picture of a servant. And yet, the second thing we see in here is that Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. He, the God, the creator, came to this earth and was a servant and was a sacrifice. 
for us. He laid himself down for the future glory that was to come. And because he laid himself down, it says that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is the glory. Jesus, who made himself low, was brought up. He was exalted by God the Father. And this is true for us. When we surrender to him, make ourselves low, die to ourself and to our sinful ways, God lifts us up in him. Here and now, the Spirit is working in us. That's how we are exalted. He's working in us. We have new life in him. And yet that goes one step further in all eternity where we will be with the creator of the universe. We will be with the all-sovereign God. This is what Jesus did. He was the perfect example for us of what it means to lay ourselves down for the future glory that is to come. And when we obey him, we have joy in the midst of trial because we know that God is truly who he says he is. We know that he is sovereign, that he's in control. We know that he has chosen us from the beginning of time to be his own, to be his people. We know that God is working in us and through us, transforming us into the image of his son. And that we are called to obey him. Paul in, or sorry, Peter, in verses 10 and 12, he sort of talks about the future glory that's to come. I'm in the wrong verse. That's book. That's why it's confusing. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So here again we see the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. We see that suffering comes first and that glory comes second. That cannot be the other way around. But that is the story of how God saves us. He saves us from sufferings into new life in him. Not only that, but this salvation that these people received, the salvation that we received, is one that had been prophesied about. It's the whole story of redemption. God's great and glorious story of how he created a perfect world without sin and how Adam sinned and broke the relationship between God and man and how God chose his nation Israel to be his people. And while they were unfaithful, God remained faithful. And after a time of silence, God sent his son to dwell on this earth with his people. And God took our sins died on the cross, was dead in the grave for three days, and rose to new life. And then he ascended to be in heaven with God the Father. This is the story of redemption, but it's not done there. We need to remember our future glory of when Christ will come again, and we will be united with him, united with the one 
who saved us, united with the one who chose us, united with the one who is working in us, and united to the one that we obey. This is a glorious truth. In fact, it's so glorious that Peter says that these are things into which the angels long to look. These angels, heavenly beings, long for this salvation. Yet we take this salvation so for granted. But the angels long for this. They wish that they could be a part of this glorious plan that God has given us. They wish that they could be a part of the grace and mercy that God has given us. Yet we take it for so for granted. How often do we live our lives, we go day to day, just tacking our salvation onto our Sunday, maybe a couple days during the week. We forget about our future glory in heaven. We forget that God has given us a living hope by his Son and that he has offered us the greatest inheritance of them all. How often do we forget those things? These are the things that the angels long for, and yet we leave them behind. We need to focus our hearts on Christ, what he's done, what he's given us, and our future in eternity. This is the gospel, that not only have we been saved, we've been saved to eternal life and glory with God forever. And just like Peter encouraged these people in the midst of their suffering and trials, we can also be encouraged through our suffering and trials, knowing that God has chosen us to be his own people, that God has offered us this gift, this inheritance that we have in heaven, that he's keeping us in heaven for himself, that he is working in us, through us, that he is refining us through the fire, even when it's hard. All of that for the praise and glory of God, that our faith would be proven genuine. This is what gives us hope in hard times. So I challenge you this week, make yourself low so that Christ would become greater. And that's a hard thing to do. And we need accountability to have others call us out when we're making ourselves high and lowering God in our lives. The only way we can lift up God in our lives is by lowering ourselves. And that is what Christ calls us to, even when our world contradicts it. Because we're living in a world as exiles, in a land that's not our own, and yet we have encouragement from Christ who has bought us by his blood and is refining us by the fire. So let's pray. Holy God, we thank you that you have chosen us. We thank you for your great promises of salvation. Lord, we thank you that you are transforming us. Lord, we pray that you would continue to do that, that you would use this morning to work in our hearts, to draw us closer to yourself, that we wouldn't love our world but that we would love you, that you would set our sights on heaven, that we wouldn't be distracted by here and now, but that we would be passionate to share of all that you've done with those around us, that we would desire to share that with others. Lord, we thank you that you have worked this in our lives and that you call us to obedience. Lord, we pray that as we go this week, that we wouldn't fall to the things of this world, but that you would keep us strong, walking in you, obeying you, putting you first, and laying ourselves down. We thank you for this, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Go and pray.
in peace and live for the glory of God.